Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Luke Anceschi, and I'm your host this afternoon in the NBN Central Asia Studies. I'm very happy to start my tenure as the podcast, the host of this podcast with Professor Edward Schatz from the University of Toronto, who today is presenting his book, Slow Anti-Americanism, Who Came Out with, uh, earlier on in the year with Stanford University Press. Ed, good afternoon and welcome to the show. Thanks, Luca. It's great, uh, great to have the opportunity to chat with you. Uh, Ed, uh, I just would like to start with a question that it tackles your book from another perspective. Uh, I mean, why did you want to write about this? What was your idea before you actually start to put ink on paper? Oh, yeah. Um, there's a simple answer, and then there's a more complicated, maybe less uh, interesting answer to the, to the audience. Um, briefly, on the, more, on the less interesting one... Um, this is a book that has been in gestation for probably, depending on how you count it, 20 years. Um, and it sort of charts out the, the change that I noticed anecdotally just through sort of side observations while I was busy with other projects in how Central Asians view the United States. And it's a, it's a story that sort of dovetailed with discussions that you hear in other contexts about how is the United States viewed? The language of anti-Americanism, which though it's problematic, is is one uh, is, is a language that ultimately I engage with in the book. But this was sort of bandied about in everyday discourse, and I wanted to make sense of it. But I didn't have time; I was busy with other things, and 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 you know, life intervened and so on. But eventually, was able to put pen to paper, as it were, and and um, and put this together. But on the more academic uh, side, I was I was really frustrated with how some of the debates about anti-Americanism played themselves out. And this is not just about Central Asia, but about anti-Americanism in general, because the, any number of problems one could, one could point to. But there are a couple of things that stand out. The first thing is that um, the, there was a sort of an assumed relationship between popular anti-Americanism or popular, uh, popularly held negative or critical views of the United States and somehow foreign policy, right? As if um, popular opinion, if it started to shift in directions that were less congenial to the United States, would then somehow percolate up into policymaking circles and then therefore have an effect on bilateral relations with the United States. And, you know, I mean, this is possible. It certainly can happen. But this assumes a model of public opinion and its impact that I think doesn't really uh, hold very well in many it doesn't even hold in democratic contexts uh, very well, where public opinion has some kind of unmediated impact on policymaking. And it certainly doesn't hold in many of the authoritarian contexts that, that you and I and others who might be listening study. And so that's the first problem with the sort of notion of anti-Americanism and its significance. And then the second sort of problem that I saw was that, um, that you know, 
anti-Americanism was seen as sort of a, a property of certain kinds of places around the globe, as if it, it's, it's, it's lodged in popular imaginaries or in, you know, unchanging or largely unchanging political cultures. And there's very little you can do about it. Um, uh, was the sort of notion that flowed from this basic assumption. And, and I, I just don't buy that. And it certainly doesn't work in the context of Central Asia, where you see really quite fluctuating attitudes about the United States. Although the book does chart out the, the rising ambivalence and even rising criticism of the United States. Nonetheless, there are fluctuations that happen all the time. And to talk about unchanging cultures as if they were static, that's obviously problematic in a number of of ways, so that's the sort of initial um, impetus for for thinking about this. And I guess you know, back to the personal side, this is the last thing I'll say on that. Is you know, here I am, an American living in Canada, and you know, sort of in this liminal space when thinking about my own my own country of, of birth and, and upbringing. And um, I wanted to make sense of why the United States can be so inspiring and so. Um, such a such a great motivator when it comes to human and social relations around the globe, or simultaneously can be so frustrating, infuriating, um, dispiriting as an actor around the globe. But it was always a an important touchstone globally for um, well for peoples around the globe, including in Central Asia. Okay, well, thanks a lot. I very much enjoy the book and and I, I really agree with uh, a few reviews which I've read you know this it's a it's a short a relatively short book but it's packed with very exciting content and great research uh, now let's just move on on, on the research side uh, what kind of perspective did you take I mean did you travel a lot to Central Asia to research this book I, I heard you got some focus groups done there is a very extensive method side uh, section at the end. Can you tell us a bit more about the process that you, where you, you forge your argument? And then later on, we're going to talk about the argument as well, of course. Sure, sure. I mean, I'm definitely of the view that um, most research projects don't sort of descend pristinely from the sky. They sort of emerge <laughs> rather um, sometimes seamlessly from other work that you've, uh, that you've done. I'm sure the same goes for, for your own work, Luca. Um, so this, in a way, I was informally working on this project for uh, for years, as I mentioned, without working on it formally. But the sort of formal part of it, I mean, you know, I've been something of an advocate for for fieldwork generally, for political ethnography more generally, in, or sorry, more more specifically in uh, the discipline of political science. I think it's in, uh, indispensable uh, to uh, to deploy these kinds of methods in order to understand you know, what, how politics actually works on, on the crown. Um, and I, for a few years, was sort of befuddled how I would actually study this using political ethnographic methods and how I would reconcile the demands of extensive field work uh, with, or intensive field work with, um, you know, professional family obligations and so on. And so I ultimately ended up shifting from political ethnography as my focus to to, to using a sort of eclectic, you know, Catholic mix of, of methods, methods that I hope speak to each other. One of my critiques of the sort of so-called mixed methods revolution is that sometimes ontologically they don't actually actually speak to each other. Um, but I, I used um, several different things. You mentioned focus groups. Um, I did interviews 
uh, across the region. These were sort of these were targeted interviews with uh, you know using sort of purpose of sampling rather than trying to you know uh, get a representative sample. Um, but I was interested in particular social actors. Um, I'll get to in a second when I talk about the, the the theoretical lens that I use. And I also did a you know a, maybe a somewhat traditional I don't know a number crunching exercise. Um, that is to say, looking at uh, trying to trying to reconstruct changes in popular perspectives on the United States over time across across the region. So um, those are some of the main things. And I, and I did go to the region, you know, every year for, and I have been going to the, the region every year, sometimes more than once uh, a year, but shorter trips um, than would have been ideal, at least from an ethnographic perspective. The theoretical lens that I wanted to, to try to deploy and I ended up using in the book is, it's, it's right in the title, um, social movements and social movements literature from sociology, political sociology, I found particularly useful for a couple of reasons. One is that I think it, although it's not typically used to study authoritarian regimes, right? We tend to think of social movements as the, you know, a property of democratic context. That's really not the case. Um, Social movements have their own uh, challenges under authoritarian rule, but it's not as if they don't uh, exist and, and don't have some kind of an impact. And certainly in Central Asia, or at least in the, the three countries that I focused on, um, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan are largely out of my analysis uh, for practical reasons, but also for theoretical ones. But in Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan, you know, there are social movements. Um, they face challenges from the regime, but they're, they can be fairly vibrant. And for me, the story of, if we're going to talk about the U.S. image and how the U.S. plays out as a symbol we're more likely to see that story in the context of social movements than in sort of by using a lens of, of public opinion. You know, surveys are hard to conduct. Um, at best, they're only snapshots and so on. But we can put this in motion by looking at how social movements use images of the United States and how those depictions of the U.S. change over time. And so those depictions are the... Uh, are the um, are referred to in the book, and there's a vibrant literature within the social movements literature called framing. So this is the framing literature within social movements, and and it's it's fairly intuitive. It is it is what it sounds like. It's looking at how different social actors um, depict the United States and what resonance this has, what raw material goes into these depictions, what strategic or other considerations might go into using one depiction versus another. And ultimately, what impact this might have on the the chance that their movement might be successful. So, long way of answering, uh, you know, a bunch of different methods in service of a you know a, a, a theoretical lens that focuses on social movements. And the last thing I'll say here, and, and look forward to your next question, is you know the, I look at three different movement types in the interior chapters of the book. So there's Islamist movements, there's human rights actors and mobilizers, and then there's labor mobilization. And all of these different actors have the opportunity to frame what they're up to with regard to the United States, or in some cases, you know, ignoring what the United States is about. Oh, that's brilliant. Thanks a lot. I mean, the the argument now, I mean, obviously, your argument is that symbols matter. And as a symbol, the US influenced different groups in different ways, but also it does across different times. I mean, your your idea of being slowly and uh, with the sedimentation, the geological 
metaphor you launched is very interesting. Can you tell me a bit more about this sedimentation concept, which is fascinating? It really sits down at the center of what you're trying to do here. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I, I do use, um, I mean, the idea behind the geologic metaphor is that, I mean, if you imagine, well, this gets to the title of the book, Slow Anti-Americanism, you know, what appears to be a, say, slow, uh, even lazy river, nonetheless contains lots of opportunity for change. And it looks it looks like it's barely doing anything. But over the course of a longer time horizon, of course, rivers can bring sediment from one place to another. That sediment can uh, become a part of the, as I described, the, the layered bedrock of new societies. And so it's a way of talking about how images, uh, um, uh, how, how images, how ideas, and, and how elements of culture can actually travel over, over space and become assimilated as a new normal in a you know, fairly distant destination, right? And so this is my way of trying to account for the changes that occur to the U.S. image over time, and they're and they're fairly they're fairly broad. Like it becomes very hard to offer a sort of pinpoint prediction of you know what um, what piece of sediment is going to have what impact on what uh, on what destination, right? And I don't think you know those who study river ecologies would probably be able to do anything like that themselves. And so you know, with social life, you know, I can say this because I'm tenured. I've given up on uh, some any kind of notion of precise uh, prediction. I don't, I don't think I was ever on board to begin with. If I'm being honest, um, but here uh, I, I don't think that changes the the analysis. In fact, I think I hope it's it's a more compelling, or at least to me, it's a more plausible analysis that uh, can can take stock of a variety of different influences. Some intentional, some not. Some 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 things that we would have expected and others not. Um, but how they ultimately have an impact. So just on that brief point, um, you know, one of the things that is often discussed in the literature on anti-Americanism is, you know, how do major foreign policy, uh, let's say interventions by the United States play out locally? And these, and these are important, right? When the U.S. goes into Afghanistan, when the U.S. Uh, then goes into Iraq, um, or unintentional things like the atrocities committed at Abu Ghraib prison, um, and then how those images are, you know, uh, sent around the globe, you know, um, and, be, and, and generate sort of global outrage. What impact do these kinds of things have? And, and of course, they do have an impact, right? Um, important events, visible events, they have an impact, but they haven't. But the impact that they have is conditioned in a way on a whole lot of smaller, more mundane, and frankly, more boring kinds of influences that have been occurring for uh, for a much longer period of time. So, you know, when the U.S. comes into Afghanistan, that's um, how that plays out in Central Asia is in part a function of what the what the U.S. has come to be seen to, uh, come, uh, to represent um, prior, right, on the eve of uh, September 11th, right? And that in turn is a function of things as silly as, you know, marble cigarettes, right, or the language used to describe political economic transitions in the 1990s. Um, or, you know, the uh, NATO bombing in, um, uh, of Serb positions in Kosovo, in, uh, which plays itself out through the Russian media. I mean, there's so many different ways in which these kinds of uh, both mundane, slow moving, but also maybe more visible and sort of high profile 
uh, influences can play themselves out in, in the region. So that's, you know, the, the geological metaphor is my, is my lens. It's, uh, you know, hopefully it's, hopefully it's somewhat, somewhat useful, but it does provide some glue for the analysis in the book. Well, it's certainly very useful for us to understand how these processes work over time. And maybe even the influence is not there. You're right. It goes back in time and it just stays at the bottom of the river and changes the the, the, the situation. So now I just want to uh, have a, a couple of questions on the actual three kind of uh, three groups that you focus on. So the Islamic activist the labor mm-hmm. workers and um, the, the, the human rights, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. I, I must say, I mean, I come to Central Asia from a Middle East society perspective. So, you know, I, I'm very different from the other kind of scholars. And I had to congratulate you on the way in which you treat Islam. And I very, very seldom seen political society treated in such a delicate and uh, significant way. I mean, you... you made a very good job of treating that kind of thorny topic with a lot of knowledge in, you know, you talk about jurisprudence, you talk about the the religious side of things. And it was very refreshing for me, especially coming from someone, you know, you are in North America, a lot of kind of bad scholarship come from that part of the world when it comes to Islam in Central Asia. So sure. that one is my, is my personal note. But uh, can you... Tell me a little bit more about uh, what uh, what kind of challenges you found when you interact or either directly or indirectly with the kind of groups you talk to. I mean, there is Potahir, there is uh, IMU. Uh, what, how was the research context in which you develop those linkages developed? And also, we'll talk about the argument of the section later on. Sure, sure. Well, okay. Well, thanks. Thanks for the kind words uh, about that about that chapter. I mean, I did, um, uh, you know, academic books can take a long time. This one uh, took uh, uh, quite a long time for a variety of reasons. One of which is, I, is I, I want to get it right. So I'm glad that that um, that at least it it, uh, it you found it refreshing. I mean, one of the things I did in that chapter was actually fairly simple. It should be obvious, but um, alas, it's not always obvious, which is to just make Islamisms uh, plural, right? To talk about political Islam as having a variety of potential trajectories. And indeed, the, the three examples that I look at, Hizbut Tahrir, the, the IMU, the Islamic Renaissance Party of Tajikistan, I mean, they represent different trajectories, different political, different political visions, sometimes um, clearly articulated, sometimes, let's say, underspecified, um, but nonetheless, um, different starting points, sort of theologically slash political ideologically, and then different, um, different political opportunities. Um, and so it's not a surprise, we shouldn't be surprised that the trajectories of political Islam are, are going to vary a lot. And, and, uh, and and one could look at even more than the uh, than the three cases that that I looked at, which gets to in a way your question, which is about what are the what are the challenges? Um, I mean, there are, you know a variety of challenges. Um, uh, the sort of uh, the, the the research challenge, right, in terms of speaking to people, is um, you know who will speak to you and on what terms, and also by the way, non trivially. Uh, who do you feel comfortable speaking with? 
Um, I mean, I take a, a bit of pride in in um, venturing out to speak with people that I, you know, expect to dis- disagree with even deeply, or maybe even find their views um, somehow morally abhorrent. Uh, but I'm willing to willing to hear them out. And yet, the IMU, which <laughs> I mean, the IMU was beyond <laughs> what I was what I was willing to venture, and and um, and that's okay. <laughs> At least my wife tells me that's okay, right? <laughs> that I didn't that I didn't uh, take those kinds of risks. So I didn't have conversations with people from the IMU. But you know, here I, I'm a big fan. This is why I think eclectic scholarship is is necessary in terms of eclecticism in terms of sources, at least which makes me maybe a closet historian or something. I don't know. Um, I, uh, you have to get, try to get to the nearest possible vantage point to the, the ideal source. So if speaking to a, um, a prominent member of, of IMU can't be, can't be arranged. Oh, there's my uh, cat in the background. Apologies. Um, the, uh, if, if that can't be arranged, then, you know, there's some terrific um, so-called prison notebooks um, by captured uh, that were uh, captured by Uzbek authorities, or sorry, seized by Uzbek authorities from IMU prisoners, and used by um, um, Babajanov and Olcott, and I, and I reference it in the book, and it gives a sort of you know a, a bit of an insight into how at least some members of the IMU were thinking about um, the United States, about how their effort fits into. Um, uh, some kind of um, it fits into their own political agenda. So, practically speaking, you know, uh, in a way, you don't take no for an answer. But if no is really the answer, then you move on to the the the, the next possibility, which I did with the IMU. Hizbutahrir, as you know, as anti-U.S. as that organization has always been, and it really has been from its inception. Um, the activists there, um, because they profess a nonviolent solution to political problems, like to present themselves as, as open um, to any kind of discussion or debate, right? And so that is something that is uh, that that really means that they're happy to have conversations, even with foreign researchers, even foreign researchers from from North America. So I didn't have any trouble getting to Hizbut Tahrir activists. The the challenge there, of course, is that Hizbut Tahrir being um, uh, initially tolerated in Kyrgyzstan, but eventually banned there and banned uh, earlier in other contexts of Central Asia. Uh, you know, <laughs> the government wasn't too, particularly too happy that I was having these kinds of conversations, but they weren't that active in pursuing me either. I never was uh, brought in to, uh, to, to a chat about how maybe I might want to alter my, my research topic. Uh, and the IRPT, as the book goes into, you know, offers a pretty positive depiction of the United States, at least initially. And so that's an opportunity for some terrific discussions. And as you know from the book, I mean, uh, uh, others listening might be aware, Mohidin Kabiri was quite interested in engaging with ideas of um, scholars and others from from the West. Um, and so that was an opportunity. But the, the, there is a bit of a, a critique. I shouldn't be doing this, but, you know, one of the things I couldn't do that, you know, I hope others can is look at less politically cohe- or organizationally cohesive or politically active um, Islamist slash Islamic actors, right? So I'm not looking at sort of um, reading circles. I'm not looking at um, local interpretations of Islam that are that don't rise to the level of being something political. Um, 
And so that's a you know reasonable critique or at least a limitation of of what I I did. I was only seeing those who were um, aspiring to to sort of alter the political agenda. When arguably what should what should be done and what some others have done, as you know, Luca is um, is looking at the, the relationship between sort of ordinary piety on the one hand, uh, ordinary interpretations of Islam, and um, and and social slash political activism based on on those values on the other hand hard to do because it's much more diffuse um and uh but but nonetheless an important piece of a very large puzzle so always on the on the is uh, on the islamic activists uh how did you did you find them responding to your argument about the symbols how did you end up discussing in in practical terms with them, this American symbol? Yeah. So, um, I mean, of course, when I'm, when I'm looking at written texts, that's, that's different, right? I can look for what is relevant to the, the research question that I'm interested in, but I was very, um, concerned as, you know, you would know from doing as many interviews as you do across the region, I don't want to prime people. I don't want people to, um, you know, if I come in sort of saying I'm, you know, I'm doing a study about um, about how the United States is imagined in Central Asia, then, well, of course, people will talk about that. But I was more interested in in that coming up organically in the course of conversation. Um, and, you know, I didn't have to do anything there, right? It's, uh, you know, here I am, somebody from, you know, who carries a Canadian and an American passport, uh, Canadian researcher because I'm at a Canadian university, but nonetheless, I think it's sort of natural for my interlocutor to be thinking about the the relationship between what they're up to on the ground and let's say global actors. After all, here I am coming from across the globe. And so I think the conversation came up uh, organically. Um, and then I would follow their lead on those kinds of um, whatever they brought up. But Again, I didn't, but I'm interested more, and I've always been more interested in their worldview than in my own research agenda. I know that sounds bizarre, but I figure if if what I if what if my research question doesn't appear in their worldview um, with minimal to no priming, then uh, then maybe it's just not that important to them, right? Now, there's a radical view of this, which basically, you know, um, I don't know, represented by people like Fred Schaefer, uh, who does ordinary language interviewing, which is terrific, a terrific sort of skill and a terrific um, approach, but that wants to avoid planting any idea <laughs> in the in the seeds of your, uh, in the minds of your interlocutor. I don't go that far, but I try to lean strongly in that direction and la- allow them to take the, um, to take the lead in, in these kinds of conversations. I'm not sure if that's what your question was, but, uh, but that's the strategy. It did, I think that it's important that, you know, in this kind of conversation we're having, we go a little bit beyond what the, the actual book is because everyone can read the book, but the page has got two dimensions, whereas here you can tell us how you got to that point. You know, it, it's incredibly more interesting. So now, uh, labor rights, the, 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 last, the last chapter of the tree in which you examine the symbols. I mean, this is another great, greatly innovative chapter. I mean, there is a, a rise in literature now on those issues of people who have been working on labor activism in Central Asia, particularly in Kazakhstan, and which is what you focus on in this context, if I remember correctly. Uh, 
why did you select this specific form of social movements? And again, how did the U.S. symbol resonate with the people you talk to, if you talk to people in, in that context? Yeah, no. So, yeah, so that's so, uh, so um, labor activism is the third area I look at. And really, again, the question is, how do activists use um, uh, or avail themselves of, of what I call the symbolic raw material uh, uh, regarding the United States? And so we, we talked about the Islamist um, use of, of American symbols, uh, symbols of the United States. Um, the interesting case, and, and I actually thought, I didn't think that this was a chapter. I didn't think, expect that it would become a chapter because, it, because it's, it's, it's what, you know, the, the methodologists call a negative case, right? It's a case where labor activists actually rarely invoke the United States, right? Um, and the claim that I want to make is, is twofold. First, they were extremely aware of the United States as a global actor in international political economy, as the driver behind much of the neoliberal push of the 1990s and 2000s. And so it's not as if they were unaware of the United States. And yet, second part of the argument, they didn't use the image of the United States, right? They didn't use this potentially globally res or this this actor with global resonance um, to link the, their struggles up to the struggles of those who are in you know Bangladesh or dying in fires in Moscow or you know or in sweatshops in New York City right they didn't they didn't they didn't do that and my, my claim is and it's a counterfactual claim it, it, it didn't happen but my claim is that there was an opportunity that was missed here that had they, used uh, this um, this sort of master framing, this would have linked them up to resources, both symbolic and potentially financial resources from, um, from, from movements around the globe, or maybe even just plug them into networks that would provide know-how about how to, how to organize. Um, so there was an opportunity missed. Not that, and let me just be clear here, not that I think that, you know, had they framed this with regard to some kind of notion of American style global capitalism, not that that would have um, likely changed their fate, right? I mean, there's so much um, that is structurally limiting labor activists in in Kazakhstan and, and elsewhere, and Kazakhstan is the focus largely of the chapter, Um from authoritarian dirty tricks by the by the regime to well the structure of you know global capitalism which doesn't really which um, doesn't really allow space for this kind of mobilizing or doesn't appreciate the the mm-hmm. that that labor should have a seat at the at the table in ways that might uh, that it might in the future and that it had in the past but you know we're we're clearly still in a in a neoliberal moment I would suggest and so I'm not sure that it would have made a a, a fundamental difference, but I do think it's strange that that activists don't take advantage of the opportunities that present themselves, and so that's the case that I try to make in the in the chapter. And as as with all sort of negative cases where you don't find the outcome, um, you know, I mean, hopefully it generates a conversation, um, especially with those other scholars working on labor activism. And like, I think it's fabulous that there are, there are a terrific number of um, of scholars tackling this issue because I think it's 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 clearly uh, it's clearly going to be important for the next uh, for the next decade not just in Central Asia but beyond um, but if it generates a conversation you know among them um, and uh, then that's terrific okay well uh, I got 
um, two more questions for you, Ed, if you don't mind. And the first one uh, goes back to the point that you make in the conclusion. I mean, what needs to be done? This, this is a book that simulates discussion about public diplomacy. Uh, what kind of lesson do you think the policymakers should take from the argument that you make into the book? Yeah. So um, just just briefly, because it, I think it's a it's it you know in a way I'm now realizing that there's a whole new book that somebody maybe not named Ed Schatz should write um, uh, about public diplomacy specifically, right? Um, I say not named Ed Schatz because I think it's a huge huge topic, um, and uh, frankly, maybe I need a tiny bit of break from from thinking about it. But I think there's some important, uh, uh, I think I hint at some important kinds of ideas here. First thing, I, and I think that this should be obvious actually from the preceding chapters, which is to say, um, doing nothing on the public dip- diplomacy front is a bad idea, right? And I mean, that's in a way the easy argument to make, but um, leaving the image of the United States uh, to fate or sort of thinking that it's it's simply uh, too tall an order, uh, too expensive, uh, too unpopular to try to mount any effort to shape what how the U.S. is is viewed across Central Asia or elsewhere, um, that that's uh, that leads to a sort of a do nothing attitude and doing nothing actually um, is worse. Right. Um, doing we've 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 tried that in a way, um, but we haven't done nothing. But we we do too little, and arguably it's it's not it's not particularly worked. And this, which gets to the second point, which is the we talk about the message, and we talk about the messenger. The message often, I would suggest, U.S. policymakers, especially in Department of State, uh, maybe it's different in other parts of U.S. government, but I think they get it right. Um, I think that um, you know. Those crafting these messages, they know what the U.S. is um, is uh, lauded for, um, is seen to symbolize in, in a positive kind of way, and they know how to deploy those messages. So the problem is not the is not finding the right message. The problem is narrowing the gap between the message and the um, and the other things that the U.S. government is up to, because those too send messages. So, you know. When you uh, withdraw rapidly from Afghanistan and chaos ensues, that's not an intentional message, but that sure is a message that plays itself out across Central Asia. Um, and I mean, I haven't studied this; it's been too recent. But I, you know, I suspect that that leads to more conversations about the United States and its role globally than does I mean, among a general public than would some kind of targeted message from a State Department official, right? So. But even more broadly is, you know, the, the, so it's a narrowing the gap, right? You have to be consistent. Your message has to be consistent with the actual conduct of foreign policy. And I think, you know, easy, easy for me to say, but I think it's a a fundamental principle ought to be, you know, treat your allies the same way you treat your, your rivals Um, with regard, for example, to human rights. I mean, it seems simple, but if you're if you're trying to undermine some kind of notion of the United States as a hypocritical, disingenuous actor in global politics, then you need to be consistent with your own principles before you message those principles. So that's that's the sort of second point. The third one I get into in some at some length in the conclusion, which is the messenger really really matters. Um, and so there's a 
little um, survey experiment that, that we do, but the, the, the upshot is probably something that, you know, would be intuitive to most listeners, which is who you put in charge of delivering a message matters, right? The, the, um, the, if, if there's a positive depiction of the United States and it's attributed to Donald Trump or to George Bush, it plays itself out differently than if that is attributed to a local Peace Corps volunteer, right? And so the, the lesson for policymakers is, you know, um, this longstanding, and it happened, it accelerated under the Trump administration, but it predates the Trump administration, this evisceration of the diplomatic corps um, and this moving away from knowing local languages and local cultures and contexts, uh, that needs to be reversed and reversed quickly so that you have credible messengers who surely they're not going to get everything right, but at least they're out there and they can find sort of nodes to connect with local populations. They're credible they, um, and they might, be, they might be more effective. So I guess those would be the sort of lessons from the, the chapter. Sorry, one last thing because, you know, there's always three and then you add the fourth. Um, which is have long time horizons, right? Um, and this is tough given the rhythms of U.S. politics and the typically short time horizons that come from uh, regular elections. Not that I want to get rid of regular elections, but I'm saying that those involved in this, in particular, image making is a long trajectory. It's a slow process. And so um, it, any kind of solution needs to be um, gazing pretty far over the horizon. Just to conclude, uh, I mean, most times when you read book reviews, the, the reviewer says, this is a timely book. And in your case, the book is very timely, even though for a dif- for different reason that probably it was when you actually finished write the writing. So we're recording this, what's today? October the 5th, 2021. So there had been a withdrawal from Afghanistan done in whichever way has been done a couple of months ago. We've been listening about a post-U.S. Central Asia now. Uh, is there a future for U.S. symbol in Central Asia after whatever happens this year? Yeah, I think so. Um, um, in fact, I would be very surprised if if not. And, and the reason is that, um, I mean, this is a premise that really sort of um, undergirds the whole book, which is that the U.S., um, Although you know, often claims to be the exceptional actor in global in global politics, U.S. exceptionalism and so on, is on a you know has historically um, parlayed that exceptionalism into a special mission uh, based on universal values. So there's this exceptionalism, but universalism at the same time, and it's the universalism, the claim to universality of its of its um, of its values that I think is I don't think it's disappeared. Now it's obviously. Um, been fundamentally challenged, and it's not to say that people necessarily buy into this claim that that um, say human rights values, as espoused by the United States, are universal values. But nonetheless, I think that's one of the things that distinguishes the United States from other kinds of actors. Uh, just take Russia and China briefly. Um, well, let's start. Let's start with China. China, you know, obviously um, surging influence across the globe, across Eurasia, across Central Asia. Um, And yet it depicts itself, depictions and reality can be different as we know, but it depicts itself as, you know, the, the, as, as having engineered a peaceful rise, 
as not imposing its values on anybody. In fact, as uh, quite different from the United States, which has conditions, which requires that you become something that, that you're not. Again, reality can be quite different, but I do think in terms of how the symbolic politics play themselves out, um, China is less likely to be a universal touchstone beyond where it is, it is palpable, palpable and visible, right? Whereas the U.S., you know, if you've got a Black Lives Matter protest in the United States, that's going to, one way or another, filter into, look, through, you know, through, typically through Russian media, but whatever, it'll make itself into local context, and it'll become a touchstone for conversation, for contestation, maybe uh, raw material for mobilizers in ways that are a bit hard to predict, but that nonetheless are uh, of ongoing relevance. So I think, you know, we saw this with the United States in the 90s, which it had a very light footprint in the region. It's now looking like it's going to have a light, if not even lighter, footprint in the region. But I don't think that if you take symbolic politics seriously, I don't think that means that it's going to recede um, in its importance uh, to the extent that symbolic politics uh, continue to matter. Um, There was a second part to your question, and I'm trying to... I'm trying to remember. No, about I, I, I think you answered it. it. It's the future about this, uh, this mm-hmm. or the US sim- symbolism in Central Asia. So you reckon that yeah. it's there to stay, changing but staying anyway. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I, I wanted to, to to say a word just briefly about about Afghanistan, and you know, I don't pretend to know which direction the. Um, the new aspiring state under the Taliban is, is, is going to go. But one of the things that is suggested by the, the book, and um, I, I hope to have conversations with Afghan specialists on, on this, is that um, some of the slower processes that we see at play in, in Central Asia, post-Soviet Central Asia, I wonder if they were at play in Afghanistan uh, as well. Again, the non-spectacular, mundane, but nonetheless cumulatively important um, and consequential rise of critiques of the United States um, that lends itself to, well, maybe not an embrace of the Taliban, because, you know, uh, but at least an acceptance. um, And it can help to account for the radical tipping point that we saw over the, when was it? I can't remember, you know, two, three months ago where the Taliban mm. seemed to take over provincial capitals and then all of a sudden they were in Kabul. Uh, maybe that was a month ago, it seems like. Um, but in any case, uh, more, more food for thought. And, and I, you know, I could be wrong on the, on the, on the, the China as symbol um, as China's role begins to increase. I think there, there will be much food for thought, but I do think the framework of trying to separate the say material influence from the sort of symbolic influence might be uh, an interesting way forward when we think about China's role um, across the space. No, but, but certainly uh, the fact that now there's going to be a non-direct president of the US in, in the region, if anything, amplifies the importance of symbols because we can actually see the, the sedimentation in act without being sort of distracted by the military aspect or the political aspect of it. So, you know, once again, it's it's a very topical book, a great book. And uh, I thank, thank you a lot, Ed, for your time this afternoon. And thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Luca. It was a great conversation, terrific questions. And thanks for saying such nice, uh, ni- nice things about it. Great to chat with you. Glad you're doing the podcast. 
So this afternoon, we talked about slow anti-Americanism, social movement, a symbolic part in Central Asia, with his auto-edge shots. I'm Luke Anceski, your host. Goodbye.